0: 14. Matthew 14. We'll finish this chapter today. We'll look at verses 22 to 36, the end of the chapter. I remember as if it were yesterday a fishing trip I took with my dad and some men from our church when I was about seven or eight years old. I remember because it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my youth. Out on the water all night in a small fishing boat, we encountered something you do not ever see here, the ferocity of an Oklahoma thunderstorm, which stirred the water into a tempestuous frenzy, terrified us with violent lightning strikes all around us only to leave us blinded in the pitch black fury of the wind and the rain. I was terrified. You see, there's a sense of isolation and helplessness which seizes us with fear in such situations and permanently etches them on our memory. In our text today, Jesus' disciples experienced just such an incident which Jesus used, which he etched on their memory and used to disclose his true identity and to teach them to trust him. That's what we're going to find this morning in Matthew 14. Let me read it, beginning with verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. This is right after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then The crowd disperses and he stays to pray and sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because of the wind against it. And Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they would crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Two major parts of this story that I want to talk about, Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking on the water. Two truths. The first is this. Jesus rules... Over the forces of nature. Jesus rules the forces of nature. You know, already this month, we have seen and heard uh, of the awesome power of nature. I was just thinking about what I've seen in the news in the last few uh, days and weeks. Much of the U.S., including my house, covered with ice. Uh, Mudslides this week killing 18 people in their homes in California with no notice, a major earthquake, 7.6 earthquake in in the Caribbean Sea, and 13,000 tourists stranded by avalanches up in the Alps. You know, for all of our computerized meteorological wizardry, we still watch pretty helplessly as nature unleashes its fury. Our best hope is to understand enough to predict a, a, a catastrophe. But the thought of control over such events remains only a dream. With that in mind, consider the events in our text. For here, Jesus doesn't just understand, analyze, and predict the forces of nature. Here he exercises dominion over them using them or suspending them according to his will. And so in the midst of the storm, Jesus comes to his disciples, battling with, against the wind and the waves, Jesus comes to his disciples walking on the water. Now we are, would readily dismiss this event as some fable, something maybe Matthew employed to spice up his account of Jesus' life. It would be, that's the easiest thing, and everybody dismisses it. Except that this event is recorded by three eyewitness accounts. Matthew, who was undoubtedly in the boat. Peter, who was undoubtedly in the boat, told his story to Mark, who wrote it down. And John, who was in the boat. In addition, there's a similar account back in Matthew chapter 8 where Jesus was awakened in the midst of the storm and calmed the wind and the sea. And that account was recorded not just by the eyewitnesses Matthew and Peter, but also by the more systematic historian Luke, who did the research and figured out all the details and wrote them down in an orderly way. In fact, that comparison event with this previous incident helps us to understand exactly what Jesus was doing here, what he was teaching his disciples. Consider Matthew 28. I'll just read it to you, verse 26 and 27. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and it was completely calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. That first incident caused the disciples to question Jesus' identity. That was the big question. What kind of man is this? Now we come to a similar, actually a more extravagant event a few chapters later, and compare what they asked back in chapter 8 with verse 33 of our text. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. After this even more inconceivable incident, it's one thing to be in a, in a storm and have Jesus calm the storm, but walking on the water, that you've never seen. After even this more inconceivable incident, the disciples were able to answer their own question that they asked earlier. Did they see an angel? Did they see a ghost? Or what? Oh, they're certain now. Truly, you are the Son of God, for he is the one who rules the forces of nature. But there's even more to it than that. These men were not just some scientific illiterates escaping a non-scientific escaping to non-scientific deities to explain events that we assume we could explain better than they. Now these were men who understood this incident in light of the self-revelation of God that they had in the scriptures. And in doing so, they have given us an explanation Of the significance of these events, which we could never even approach with our scientific mindset. What we have here is nothing less than Jesus Christ's self disclosure given to his apostles that they might confirm his identity as they they compare that with what they read in the scriptures. So, let me explain. According to the scriptures, and you know something about the scriptures, according to the scriptures, the Old Testament, which they had, who could ever have conceivably done the things that Jesus did? Only the Lord God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I Am. Psalm 89 says it, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. Psalm 107 says the same thing. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You covered the earth with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. Job 9 says the same thing of the Lord. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads upon the waves of the sea. These apostles, they might have never studied meteorology. They knew from the scriptures that there was no one who exercised dominion over the forces of nature except the Lord. Yahweh, Jehovah as we say. The great I am, and that's exactly what Jesus claimed for himself. That's how he identified himself here. Consider verse twenty-seven. In a lot of places, Jesus has tied himself to the eternal divine name I am, that the Lord calls himself. I am back in the in Exodus three. So Jesus said, "I am the bread of life." In John 6, I am the light of the world. In John 8, I am the resurrection and the life. In, in John 11, and, and in, in chapter 5 of John, he says, Before Abraham was, that's 2,000 years ago, before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. That's a bold statement. And so, in this passage, Jesus says the same thing again. He literally says, Take courage. I am. Do not fear. Now this statement might simply mean take courage. It is I. This is often translated. But coupled with the Old Testament scriptures and what they, what they declare that only the great I am could exercise dominion over the forces of nature, we must conclude that Jesus' statement carries just such a claim. As he claims to be one with Jehovah, the Lord God, the I am. Jesus is the Lord, the ruler of the forces of nature. This morning we need to feel the impact of this event. This Jesus is not content to be listened to as a great teacher or to be followed as a great example or to be admired as some superhuman person, or to be pitied as a martyr for a cause. This Jesus claims by his words and by his deeds that he is nothing less than the Lord God, the creator and the sustainer of heaven and earth. Did the apostles understand that to be his claim? Without a doubt. John wrote concerning this Jesus, through him all things were made, and without him was nothing was made that has been made. The Apostle Paul later continued that line of thought. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This morning, I call you to the same response that the disciples had in the boat. Worship this Jesus. He is God, the Son. I'm not saying make Jesus Lord of your hearts in some kind of mystical religious experience. I'm not saying that. I'm calling you to recognize that in the real world in which you live and watch the weather forecast and read the news and go about your business in that world in which you live, Jesus is the Lord. You must bow before him in worship and then rise and serve him with every fiber of your being, every ounce of your strength, every minute of your time, every nickel of your wealth, every bit of the loyalty of your heart. He is the Lord. He has disclosed himself to be the creator and the ruler of even the forces of nature. That's the first thing this passage teaches us. But the story doesn't end with Jesus walking on the water. There's a second truth for us here, and that's this. Trust and obey even when it seems impossible. Trust and obey even when it seems impossible. I've noticed an interesting thing, and maybe you've noticed it too. Ever notice that Christians, as they mature in the faith, we tend to ask God and trust God for less and less. We ask for things which either cannot be measured, so we never embarrass God if he doesn't come through for us. Or we ask for things which we can accomplish ourselves, to make sure that God isn't maligned because it didn't happen. New Christians, are. they ask God for the most outlandish things, things that sometimes just make me cringe. Really? Oh, no, don't ask for that. That's not going to happen? Now, Christians certainly need to grow in their knowledge of God's will, and we need to learn to ask him for things which he has declared to be his will instead of asking for every selfish desire that we might come up with. But as we learn to ask and trust God for things that we know to be his will, we are not to reduce our expectations or trust God less than we used to. In our text, Peter teaches us about believing God for the impossible. To understand what's going on with Peter, we have to... Kind of consider this earlier incident back in Matthew uh, 8 where Jesus calmed the storm. Jesus, you may recall, was sleeping in the boat back then when the storm kicked up and the disciples were terrified and they woke him up fearing that they were about to die. Jesus responded by saying, oh, you have a little faith. Why are you so afraid? And then he rebuked the wind and the waves and it became calm. You, we may recall we mentioned this months ago when we talked about that. When Jesus scolded them for being afraid, he used a different word for fear than the normal word. He used a word that means unbelieving cowardice. Why are you such unbelieving cowards? That's kind of what he really said. Jesus was not saying there was no danger, but only with that his presence with them should have quieted their fear. Now it's another night, months later. Same lake, same boat probably, same people, same kind of storm, and the same Lord comes walking on the water. Peter's fear almost immediately turns to faith, for he's been there, before. One can almost hear Peter mutter, Jesus is not going to accuse me of being a coward again. And what's the opposite of being an unbelieving coward? It's to be, it is faith-filled courage. And so Peter says to the Lord, something I would never have the faith or courage to say something you would probably never say. Peter says to the Lord, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Notice Peter doesn't claim to have any power to do that. He simply asks Jesus for the impossible. If it's Jesus and if he wants him to do that. And Jesus says, come. Now what do you do? Peter immediately is out of that boat and onto the water, walking toward Jesus. Note that to this point, there was no problem. Jesus never chided Peter for the absurd impossibility of his request. Nope. Jesus never treated Peter's courageous faith as if it were anything but normal. It was not until Peter reconsidered the situation and doubted. That Jesus rebuked him. But even that rebuke sounded more like a parent teaching a child to walk and saying, Why did you quit? Oh, you have a little faith. Why did you doubt? Don't doubt. Don't quit. Where you see, faith trusts and obeys, even when it seems Impossible. We're not looking at foolishness here or arrogance on Peter's part, nor are we looking for some brute force display of power on Jesus' part. He didn't do that. Instead, Jesus is teaching his disciples not only the significance of who he is and the relationship to him, but what it means to trust him. Here Jesus impresses on them that because he is the Lord, in faith they can ask anything they know to be his will and he will hear and he will answer. Folks, this is a lesson we need to learn. Think how it applies to us. It certainly applies to our praying. God expects us to learn what his will is. And then when we see discrepancies around us, we see his will not happening, we're to ask him to do what he said, no matter how impossible it might look to us. So for example, we know from the scriptures that it is God's will for the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations on earth until his glory fills the earth. We know that's his will. And that clearly has not happened. So we should pray, as Jesus told us, that he would send out labors into the harvest field to do what God promised to do. And is that how we pray? Are we too busy asking God for more stuff? Oh, but this lesson of faith applies other places as well. We read accounts of Jesus' life in the Gospels, Jesus living in this world without sinning, no compromise, no lost temper, no malice, no uncleanness, no covetousness, no greed. And we might say, Wow, it would be nice to live like that. And Jesus says, yes, come and be holy like I'm holy. Is that possible? Can you do that? Not a chance. No, you can't. Nevertheless, Because he teaches us to trust and obey, no matter how impossible it looks, we step out in faith. We put one foot in front of the other. We begin to trust Jesus Christ to do in us what we know he wants to do in us. And though we are powerless to change ourselves by God's grace, we begin to learn to walk in holiness. We trust And obey, even when it seems impossible. For we know God is able to do whatever he wills to do in spite of our weaknesses. This account sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Jesus walking on the water and Peter walking on the water. Neither you nor I can explain how that could happen. But we can understand why God preserved this account for us, why he did those things, and why he preserved this for us. Two reasons. First, Jesus is disclosing himself to us as the Lord of all creation who rules everything, even the forces of nature. Folks, he's worthy of your worship. Just as he was worthy of the worship of these men in the boat. And secondly, Jesus is teaching us to trust and obey him. Even when we know it's impossible. That's how faith works. It understands God's will from his word. And so it begins to ask him to do what he proclaimed it was his will to do. And it begins to trust him and obey what he says, whether we can do it or not, to start walking. For nothing is impossible with God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, if we read these accounts anywhere else, we would just know that uh, this is a fairy tale and that it could not have possibly happened and we would uh, perhaps try to find some little moralism from it. But when we studied in the context of your word that you've given and that you preserve for us all these thousands of years, we realized that this is not a fairy tale. That this is you, the eternal God, showing yourself and identifying your son Jesus who came and walked among us and whom you have given all power in heaven and on earth, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, the ruler of the forces of nature, that we might know him and worship. And it's Jesus teaching us the implications of knowing him, what it means to trust him for things we cannot do and to obey, to start to walk in ways we know we cannot pull it off. And yet knowing that these things to be your will, we realize you do this in us. You make us holy. You give us life. You cause us to stop sinning, to love you with our whole heart, all things that do not come natural to us, but we know to be your will. Oh Father, maybe not just dismiss this as something that we've never heard such things before, but maybe hear it and digest it and worship you and trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Print in your bulletin is an affirmation of faith. You'll find it, we'll read it together.